I feel like the game really feels like it's it's speaking from that legacy of intersectional and Afrofuturist dreamers and writers and activists who have been who have known for a long time um, that the apocalypse is always happening and that we are in a constant state of change and that yes these stories uh, what we choose to take with us and what we choose to learn from them are going to influence um, our evolution as humans Welcome to Pixel Therapy, the video game podcast where we look at the games we play through the lens of the player, where what you play is just as important as how you play it, and where emotional intelligence is a critical stat. I'm your co-host, Jamie, pronouns she, her. And I'm your co-host, Spencer, pronouns they, them. And this is Pixel Therapy. Patreon shoutouts is how we're going to start the episode like we always do. <laughs> so this is our special thank you to everyone who subscribed at our Patreon name in the credits tier for the month of February, because somehow it is fucking March already. I, uh, I can't believe it. Ow. February went by way too fast. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's a very big thank you to <laughs> those lovely Patreon supporters. Uh, Genevieve, Lindsay, Jackie, Ben, Pimpatai, Adiyinka, and See The Mess. Uh, the crew rolling through again for another month. Mm-hmm. Thank you all so much. Remember, if you want to get your name in the credits, you can hop on over to patreon.com slash pixel therapy pod, where you can subscribe to our show for as little as $2 a month and get access to the monthly bonus series that we call co-op mode. Uh, and in our most recent co-op mode episode that we just recorded for March, uh, Spencer and I played a fun little game called delay immediate release or cancel, <laughs> which is a take on fuck, Mary kill, but applying it to video games. And just uh, as difficult. <laughs> yes. It was really uh, an exercise in me trying to give Spencer a bad day. Um, <laughs> so if you want to go over and listen to me, torture my, my dear friend, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> hop on over to patreon.com that kind of thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you're into that, you know, uh, come on over to patreon.com slash pixel therapy pod. Uh, you can throw us the $2. You can give us the $2 just for a month and listen to all the backlog content and then True. go away. Like it's really, it's quite the deal, quite the deal. And that's okay. And we would still appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, so think about it, you know, just, just think <laughs> about it. Of course, if you're a fan of what we do here on Pixel Therapy, please consider sharing us with your friends and family, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, or even writing into the show by emailing us at pixeltherapypod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and we appreciate you listening and all of your support. Thank you. All right, Spencer, it's time to get cozy. Let's pull up an armchair. Feel free to lie down on the couch. We're going to talk about our feelings. How are you doing today? I'm love love that big sigh. <laughs> like I have to center myself with a mm. cleansing breath as I'm mm-hmm. laying down on the invisible couch. Yes, it's exactly. Part, it's all part of the transport from your living room to our shared space where this podcast happens. Mm. 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 <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I'm good. I uh, we it's March, but as is life in New England, we just got hit with another six inches of snow. That's wild. I think we're gonna. It's my partner's birthday. This just a couple days ago. So um, after this, we're gonna take advantage of the that sweet sweet powder and hit the slopes <laughs> on some big old inflated tubes and slide down a big old hill like like our inner children want us to do. Snow tubing. <laughs> snow tubing. Yeah, this I'll, is what the second activity is called. Known as snow tubing. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, you really you described it uh, in in vivid I had to detail. Paint that word picture. <laughs> you did. You did a good job. An artist. But I'm good. I uh, oh my god. I for <laughs> weeks I resisted the Persona Three portable uh, port <laughs> for the Nintendo Switch. Mm. Um, Jamie was in it weeks before I was and was yeah. kind of like, hey, like, how you feeling? Like, here's how I'm doing. What do you, what do you think? And I was kind of like, nah, not getting into it. It's kind of a slow start. I don't know what happened. I picked up, I picked it up the other night and I blanked and now I'm 40 hours in Dang. and it's taken up any moment that I, is not occupied with eating, sleeping or working. Um, wow. And the Switch, it just enables me further. I play it in the bathroom. Yeah. I play oh. it in bed. I play it at my desk when I'm in a really boring meeting. Uh-oh. <laughs> Hope your, your colleagues aren't listening. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> They're not kidding. <laughs> but it's just, uh, I'm I'm right back in it. And I also just love the 2008 vibes. Like, it's kind of nostalgic, even if I yeah. haven't played it before. Um, yeah. Especially stuff like... Uh, one of your social links, like people that you befriend throughout the game, uh, is a someone you don't know what they look like. You don't know their name. They are simply mm. a screen name in an MMO that you play on Sundays. And uh, all of your speech is like very early aughts, like yeah. Yeah. elite speak, <laughs> like just symbols, unnecessarily shortened words, like yeah. old school emoticons. Like I just I love it. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Have you finished yet? Or are you still? In the, uh, no, in the thick I'm so of it? close though. I think I think I'll be I'll be rolling credits this weekend. Oh, I'm like shit. about to go into the final like uh, yeah the final stuff. The so. final showdown. Yeah, final countdown. Yeah. And what about you, Jamie? What's new? What's new with me? What is new with me? Um, What's new, pussy cat? <laughs> <laughs> whoa, whoa. Um, <laughs> classic song. Uh, what is new with me on Monday? I did a thing, uh, that I have thought about doing since like high school, but wow. thought I was going to be way too much of a chicken to ever really do. Mm. And then for some reason, uh, like over the last six months, I got in my head, I was like, no, I, you can do this. Let's give it a shot. And I went and got a tattoo. So Spencer. proud. So proud of you. <laughs> so proud of me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I got a tattoo. I went visited my local tattoo parlor. Oh. <laughs> supported a local artist. Oh, yeah. Um, we chatted about The Last of Us the whole time. He's a big fan. Of course. Uh, he, like, a bigger fan than me, almost. He played both games, like, four times. Wow. Is actively replaying the second while watching the show. Um, He's so for, built like, different. <laughs> yeah, the whole 90 <laughs> minutes I was getting the tattoo done, we pretty much chatted chatted about The Last of Us. So that was fun. Um, but I got a tattoo of uh, one of my favorite games of all time, The Outer Wilds, uh, specifically uh, silhouettes of the big anglerfish alien guys uh, eating one mm -hmm. of the, you're eating your little spaceship or like confronting your little spaceship, um, which is the moment that the game ended for me. I think I've talked about on the podcast a little bit how, mm -hmm. unfortunately, I, despite Outer Wilds being like, one of my favorite games of all time, I wasn't able to actually finish the game and get the true ending because I just found the uh, the mechanic in that particular area to be too challenging. Yeah. Without really getting into spoilers, there's kind of a, you know, Outer Wilds is a, it has a, a roguelike element to it in that the world is kind of resetting every 22 minutes. Um, and within a run, you have to do a whole process of events to get 
the true ending of the game. Mm -hmm. And part of that process is that you have to go through an area with these big anglerfish enemies. And I, for the life of me, could not get through it without getting eaten. Um, just due to like me struggling with the general mechanics of the ship and the speed with which you had to try to move through the area. And after putting several hours into trying to do it and just having my run, which was already like a pretty complicated pro like <laughs> and finicky process get like derailed at what is like one of the last, like the second to last stage of it. Uh, uh <laughs> it, it really kind of like ruined it for me. So I ended up just watching the ending on YouTube, which I absolutely loved the ending, but yeah, I don't know. I, I've wanted to get something that marks this game. Cause it was such a like important game to me and special mm -hmm. experience, but also memorializing that <laughs> personal failure to not be able to actually finish the game. Um, Do you yeah. feel like this mark, this living reminder helps you <laughs> reclaim some power over the game and how it bested you? <laughs> I don't think I was thinking of it in quite that literal of a way. I mean, if anything, as I'm sitting here talking about it, I'm like, yeah, I'll just get tattoos of all of my personal failures <laughs> to like carry with me and remind myself. That's no, badass. I mean, I don't know. That's a, that's an interesting take on it. I'll have to think more about that. I don't, I think, um, I don't know how much like, like I haven't fully unpacked it at a subconscious level. I think I was just mm. kind of like, I really love this game. It's something that I feel like transformed me a bit and transformed the way I think about games. And I want it's something that I still carry with me. I listen to the soundtrack at least once a week. Mm. Still think about it regularly. And I wanted to be able to. It seemed like an appropriate uh, subject to use for my first tattoo. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you think um, you'd ever go back and try to finish that last run? I've definitely thought about it many times, many times. Um, I am concerned that like at that point in the game, I had gotten decent with the ship mechanics mm. and I feel like coming back cold would just be uh, mean having to like kind of relearn them all yeah. over again. I mean, even when the DLC came out, the expansion uh, came out a year ago, two years ago now. I, I don't know. Time's flat circle, but mm -hmm. Echoes of the Eye, when the Echoes of the Eye um, expansion released, Getting back into that and trying to relearn how to use that ship was, mm. and I don't know. I mean, I played the games on console with the controller. Mm. I don't know if it's easier to do it on mouse and mm. keyboard, um, but I really struggle with those ship mechanics. And I can tell from reading comments online and stuff, I'm not alone, but there's a lot of people who were able to like figure it out and like clicked with them. And I just never mm. could quite get the, get the hang of it to do it. Um, like well like i could do it good enough but never as precisely as i felt like there were times that the game wanted you to be super precise and i just couldn't yeah couldn't do it yeah it's real it's hard to recapture the energy of that first playthrough when you're trying to come back it doesn't hit the same yeah and just like trying to relearn that specific mechanic just to do like this long kind of tricky thing for the payoff of something that i've already i've already seen <laughs> yeah yeah um it's yeah, it's probably not going to happen at this point, but I do think about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed for a literal or spiritual successor, whether it's a sequel or another title along the same lines. Like I hope who I'm forgetting who makes the Outer Wilds, but let's just hope their next project is just as riveting. <laughs> it's like a very small studio that hasn't done much else. Mobius Digital. Ah, uh, yeah. Mobius Digital. Yeah. We're waiting so, for your next banger, Mobius. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very 
Very exciting stuff. But we are not here to talk about Outer Wilds or Persona 3 today. Today, we are going to be talking with you all about a game called Season, A Letter to the Future. Uh, Season was published and developed by Scavenger Studio, released January 31st of this year. And it came to to PC, PlayStation 4, and PlayStation 5. From the PlayStation Store page for the game, it says, In Season, A Letter to the Future, you play as a young woman from a secluded village exploring the world by bike for the first time collecting memories before a cataclysm washes everything away. Season is a quest to discover a new world, one unknown yet familiar. Document, photograph, and record life as you find it while you still can. Mm. That is the premise. That's the setup for the game. Spencer and I uh, tore ourselves away from Persona 3 (laughs) for 10 or so hours over the past couple (laughs) of weeks um, to get this game into our rotation. And we're excited to talk with you about it today. Um, But before we fully dive in on the game and what we thought about it and uh, how much we we loved it, I think we both came down really Mm -hmm. enjoying the game. Uh, We did want to touch a bit on some controversy that's surrounding the game that stretches back to a piece uh, published in on gamesindustry.biz written by Rebecca Valentine. Uh, on January 25th, 2021, the piece was titled Scavenger Studio Creative Director Accused of Belittling, Screaming at, Groping Employees. Gets right um, to the point. It gets right to the point. A very uh, direct um, and straightforward title from Rebecca. So in writing the piece, uh, Rebecca Valentine spoke to uh, nine current and former employees. Like at that time in 2021, they had been uh, current and former employees of the studio who described a toxic work environment fostered by the studio's co-founders, which were uh, uh, the at the time creative director, Simon Darvaux, and his romantic partner at the time of the studio's founding. A little unclear like when they actually stopped being romantic partners and kind of the the timeline of information that's available. But the person who is now the CEO of the studio, Amelie LaMarche. Um, and the article uh, depicted a years-long pattern of bad behavior, primarily from Darvaux, who was CEO when most of the outline incidents in the piece took place, um, but also from other men at the studio that he, he kind of created a, a boys club with. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the behavior described, I mean, it's a lot of textbook sexist and uh, misogynistic behavior um, as well as like textbook like toxic and abusive workplace behavior but just to to highlight a few of the things that the article describes um, boys club culture women frequently being degraded or infantilized and talked down to even about their work and the areas that they were specializing in Um, women frequently being victims of sexist remarks and behaviors numerous inappropriate comments being made about women's appearance and outfits often instigated or enacted by darvo um, or again that kind of handful of male employees that he favored Um, some other like more specific incidents that were described in the article include an intoxicated darvo apparently touching and grabbing several female employees at a company party and a woman who quit her job unexpectedly only for staff to learn after the fact that she and Darvo had been having an affair. Um, and Darvo generally was also accused of regularly referring to employees as disposable mm-hmm. and was known for screaming at and berating employees um, along with other erratic and childish, quote unquote, childish behavior Yikes. Um, that's described in the article. So long piece. It is a worthwhile read, um, even though it is a couple years old at this point, but really uh, in detail broke down what sounded like a really toxic and abusive work environment at the studio. Um, 
And while this behavior was going on at that time, the studio had about 30 to 40 people and no dedicated HR person. So LaMarche, as the other co-founder, was the go-to person for conflict resolution at the time. Uh, And so a lot of the folks speaking to Rebecca Valentine um, in the article asserted that um, they felt that LaMarche had enabled Darvo and that she was taking little action to stop the toxic behavior and that there was really no transparency around what efforts, if any, were happening to curb the work culture that was being cultivated there. Hmm. So this piece comes out in January 25th, 21, and immediately um, creates a situation at the studio where they are like locking down and trying to address the um, what had been reported on. So a few days after the GamesIndustry.biz piece was published, uh, Darvo was suspended and Lamarche stepped down temporarily. Um, and an external firm called Sol- I think it's Solertia, Solertia Consulting Group. Uh, They were hired by the studio's board of directors to conduct an independent investigation. They were given full and unfettered access to Scavenger Studios employees and ultimately reported that 85% of the workforce participated in the assessment. So from an outsider perspective, it does seem like um, some immediate steps were taken in response to the article being posted. And, uh, you know, this external group was brought in and that they were able to get the information that they needed from the staff there to be able to create a, you know, a thorough and accurate assessment. About five months after that, in June of 2021, um, the consulting group returned its assessment along with a three-tiered plan to address scavengers, organizational culture and structure, HR effectiveness and communication. And their assessment did uh, find that while there were improvements to be made, their audit, quote, did not find the presence of systemic sexual or psychological harassment at the studio. It's an interesting thing to return based on what was Mm -hmm. being uh, claimed in the original Rebecca Valentine piece. Um, But basically, their assessment was like, hey, there's there's changes that need to be made. Here is a three tiered plan for making those changes. But basically, like, we don't think you need to uh, burn it all down Mm -hmm. and raise the ground and start over again. Yeah, I guess it's like what. How, how do people define systemic? Yeah. Like if someone is, if the two people at the very top are creating this culture that's trickling down, like I would argue that that's, they're creating the system that is systemic because they are inventing the process and framework that everyone else is following. But that being said, like I know from experience that one toxic person can destroy an entire group, um, especially in a like work environment. Like it doesn't take much for like one person's toxicity to just chip away at the community and the values held by the organization. So like if they're saying, hey, without this guy in the picture, we think y'all are going to be okay, then like I have to hope that that is true. Yeah. And it's, I think it's, it's both like one person can't, one person's toxic behavior can do that. That person also has to be enabled and like have totally have power and authority. And so I don't think, Mm. uh, I don't know, I'm not, I don't work for scavenger studio. I I don't, we, all we have is the information that, Mm -hmm. you know, I can find in a Google search. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem to me like LaMarche is blameless in this, but I do think that she has from the public statements that she's made, it seems like she understands that she didn't handle things correctly. And it does seem, again, from a very outsider's perspective, that they are legitimately trying to correct this and make change. And so I think the assessment that this wasn't systemic is a weird way to put it because Mm -hmm. it was because they didn't have good systems to address Mm -hmm. this. And there was no system of accountability that was transparent and that like actually forced Darvo to 
change his behavior mm-hmm. and for the work culture to change. Like, I think it's I think it's just weird to draw that line. It's saying like it wasn't systemic. Um, yeah, but things can be systemic and still be fixable. So I don't I don't know where the you, you know you just have to change the systems. Um, but anyway, that's that's what they've done. So they, they that's what they've done. So they've been on this journey since June of 2021. Um, and at that time, uh, the board reinstated LaMarche as the CEO, and she remains the CEO of the studio now. Um, she wrote an update to the June 2021 action plan in May of 2022. Um, and then there was another update this past January before they released the game. So she is demonstrating a pattern of uh, accountability that mm-hmm. I think is um, worth acknowledging. And the the uh, plan that she posted in May of 2022 outlined the actions that the studio had already taken over the past year. Um, or like 11 months, as well as the next steps for the studio as they continue to work on the three-tiered plan developed by the consulting group. Um, so you can find those pieces that she's she's posted um, actually still on the Scavengers website by going to scavengers.ca slash journal if you have any interest in reading those in detail. But it does seem like to me, again, an outsider, that they are attempting to be transparent um, and acknowledge uh, you know, acknowledging her role in what happened and trying to do better. And as for Darvo, uh, he stopped work on the game season in January of 2021 following the initial report, and he left the studio for good this past January. Um, in those couple years between, uh, we understand that he was apparently working on an unannounced research and development project, um, but taken off of all managerial roles, and uh, he was participating over those two years in ongoing management and organizational behavior coaching from a third party. So it seems like he was kind of removed from the general populace, removed from any uh, managerial responsibility over these past two years, and then has finally Mm -hmm. decided to fully leave the studio um, as of this past January. So Mm -hmm. that's a lot of information, but we felt it was important to kind of go over that timeline of events uh, before we talk about this game because it you know there is controversy around this game and I think it's legitimate um, yeah. I also think that there's a lot of you know the studio at that time 30 to 40 people I think they're even a bit bigger now um, there's a lot of people working there that weren't participating in this behavior that mm-hmm. poured their heart and souls into this game so I think totally. it's worth supporting but I want to acknowledge that these things happen there and that you know while it seems like from an outsider perspective, the studio is turning things around and trying to do better. Um, part of how we uh, hold uh, organizations like this accountable is by staying in the loop on what's going on with them. Mm-hmm. So that's us doing that. And I also acknowledge that like we are outsiders to it, so we don't know everything. There's certainly details I could have omitted even in this overview. Like this is imperfect, but we just want to make sure... Uh, both us and our audience is kind of informed about what's going on before we start talking about this game. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. It's tough to see like studios. Like I I've observed just in my own personal life, like small studios with, you know, under 50 people, um, lots of passionate folks, um, lots of creative folks, and a complete lack of an HR presence, which, like, you know, gaming is our passion. And when you work in the industry, it's also your profession. And I think it can be hard sometimes for people to consider the fact that, hey, like, you know, we're all gathered around this really important um, 
vision and dream and project. Um, but that doesn't mean that, like, even if we all share that that vision and that goal, there's still room for conflict to arise, for abuse to arise, for um, things to go sideways. And then there needs to be support for that. Like when you start moving from just being artists and creatives and moving into organizing around a goal and actually trying to, um, you know, be an organization that comes with the responsibility to put supports in place to make sure that that organization thrives and that the people at the core of it are being protected. So I just hope um, others can learn from this and that we can continue pushing for improvements in our industry to kind of like actually care for the people making making the stuff instead of just the stuff that comes out of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well said. <sighs> well, shall we shift to talk about the beautiful yeah, let's creation talk about the, let's that talk about came the game. forth from this struggle? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's let's uh let's give this game its flowers. What did you think of season? Uh I you know I didn't know what to expect going into it. I was kind of expecting something along the lines of Sable, uh, which Mm. was a game I think we played last year um, that also was kind of about a young person um, discovering, going out on their own, discovering who they are, um, their values. And so I was kind of looking forward to this kind of like road trip slash Pokemon Snap (laughs) vibes where I'm just going around taking pictures of things and putting them in my journal. Um, I think I was struck at the deep emotional and sort of philosophical resonance that I was feeling with this game. Um, I honestly felt as soon as I was getting into into the opening uh, scenes of the game, um, where you are conducting a ritual with your mother and about to embark on this journey. Um, I felt a lot of parallels with the work of Octavia Butler, um, particularly Parable of the Sower. Um, she was an Afrofuturist uh, writer, a sci-fi writer, um, who, I mean, I, I think Parable of the Sower laid the groundwork for like everything that I believe now as an adult. And so I recommend that book to anyone. Um, And I pulled it out and I was sort of flipping through it because I just felt like there were so many kind of through lines in this game that reminded me of the book. And I actually came across this quote from the book that I wanted to share um, just to kind of set the tone for this continuing conversation. Um, But in the book, Octavia Butler writes, everyone knows that change is inevitable from the second law of thermodynamics to Darwinian evolution, from Buddhism's insistence that nothing is permanent and all suffering results from our delusions of permanence to the third chapter of Ecclesiastes, quote, to everything, there is a season. Change Hmm. is part of life, of existence, of the common wisdom but I don't believe we're dealing with all that that means. We haven't even begun to deal with it. So Hmm. I read that, especially the quote to everything, there is a season. And I was like, hold up. (laughs) I'm not crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, That feels like they're directly pulling on this. Yeah. Sorry. It seems to, no, I was just gonna say it seems too coincidental to not be. Right. That's what I thought. Um, and I, and I, and as I got deeper in the game, that theory of mine started sort of strengthened. Um, so Mm. you play as main character Estelle, 
um, who's going out on this journey of collecting um, what history uh, she wants to preserve for the next season of people to understand the people who came before. And I was struck by the sort of parallels I was observing between Estelle and Lauren, who is the uh, protagonist of Butler's book, Parable of the Sower. Real, um, real quick, can we just clarify, in the, in the world of the game, seasons are essentially like eras of human existence. Yes, yes. Like there's a season of a war, there's a season of the golden age, um, but they're, they're like periods of time, you know, could be any number of years that, mm-hmm. that like marks like, yeah, an era of human existence, kind of how, you know, we think of things like the, like the, um, the Industrial, Industrial Revolution. Revolution. Yeah. <laughs> I can never think of the term. I keep wanting to say the Revolution era. And I'm like, that's not a thing. Like the Industrial Revolution, things like that um, is, is essentially what seasons are. Anyway, I just want yeah. to preface that so that it's clear for folks. When we say season, that's what we're talking about within the context of the game. It's not seasons like winter, fall, spring. It's These are multiple years that the the people in the games world kind of block together and think of as like a time period in the existence of human history. Okay. Yes, with yeah, punctuate like each ending and beginning is punctuated by some kind of event mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. resets or you know ushers in a new era. Um, mm-hmm. But there's like a very definitive beginning and end to each one, and a feeling of an apocalypse, but one that will be survived. Um, yeah. Yes. But, but then the ties to um, Lauren from Parable of the Sower. Yes, who is also right on the cusp of an apocalypse, so sort of living through one herself. Um, so, yeah, a lot of the parallels I was seeing between these two characters. Um, Estelle uh, has lost her father. Um, mm-hmm. She shares uh, eventually in the game that her father died um, climbing a mountain. Whereas Lauren's father in the book, uh, Parable of the Sower, died uh, while climbing down into a cavern. Both of these uh, young people are leaving home on this epic journey as the apocalypse looms. Both of them are um, constructing a book, a journal, um, in Lauren's case, almost closer to a Bible, something Mm. containing snippets of um, her experiences and observations of the world that are supposed to shepherd uh, the survivors in the future um, that she may not see. And that's similar to what Estelle is doing, which is Mm -hmm. putting her observations and musings about the world down into a journal, hopefully for someone in the future to carry forth. And both of them um, Estelle says, uh, one of the dialogue options you have in the game when someone asks you, like, what are you doing? Why, why are you here when the, when day zero is about to, to, to dawn, the next, the dawning of the next season is about to come. And she responds that she seeks to know the truth of all things. And that's something mm. that Lauren, um, seeks to do as well. And so, um, I, it's one of my favorite books. Um, Octavia Butler is one of my favorite authors, um, I just really loved the sort of meditations on on change and impermanence and um, that, uh, you know, the preservation of, of history um, and, and how it's really subjective and, and what we can learn from um, these cycles of death and rebirth and, and change and, and give into them instead of trying to um, hold ourselves back from them or, or save ourselves from it in some way, which is impossible. Um, I think all of those lessons are like things that we spend a lifetime learning. And this game did a beautiful job of you know, not shying away from the sadness and the grief of letting go or of, of, um, you know, 
giving yourself up to the higher truth of things, like of the fact that nothing here we can carry with us or hold on to. Um, it doesn't shy away from that, but it also finds hope in that. Like um, for me, I was kind of struck by the fact that like the main character is probably never going to see her mother again. Um, she talks about a best friend that she grew up with who we never really see or even get to see their final interaction. Mm. Um, and it's like, she's still going on and carrying on from that and carrying that grief with her. And it just, I don't know, it's, it's not often that a game really feels like it's touching on real, the real truths of life in that way. I loved it. Mm. Anyway, sorry, I'm going to yeah. stop. <laughs> what did you think of season? No, don't, I mean, don't stop. This is a podcast. This is what, this is what uh, I want to hear. It's what the people want to hear, you know? Um, I also really, really love this game. Um, I think, you know, you're talking a lot, you're already starting to dive in into some of these, these themes. And I think one of the things that struck me the most was the way the game and the, the world of the game, the people of the game are kind of obsessed with the idea of memory. Mm. Um, even from the very opening of the game, the game opens with the scene of, you know, Estelle is in her home before she's departing on her journey. And, um, her mother tells her that before she leaves, she wants to make her a memory pendant. And what a memory pendant is within the context of the game is it's something that uh, will protect Estelle, but, you know, by wearing this pendant around her neck, she'll be prevent protected from several diseases of the mind that actually exist in the world. Like some of the ones that they name drop are this thing like memory excess, this idea that you could have too many memories, um, mm -hmm. time misperception disorder, which seems to be a thing where people are kind of stuck in the past. It almost kind of sounded like Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. um, daytime visions, uh, things like that. But just the idea that people could be overwhelmed or overloaded um, mm. or misplaced in time through disorders of their own memories. Mm -hmm, and that mm -hmm. those are like real mental illness, like diseases that folks ha can catch um, in within the game. I thought was interesting. Like the, the whole world is kind of obsessed with this idea of, of memory or like the way memory can haunt a place or a person um, and yeah. how that can actually like, hurt hurt you <laughs> um like a real like uh direct correlation to like the way trauma and mm. uh and even um like generational trauma can Im you know impact a person mm. mm -hmm. I, th I thought it was really interesting but in order to make the memory pendant um estelle's mother actually has to uh sacrifice five memories to create the pendant and estelle could sacrifice the memories but her mother's like very adamant that she wants to make the memory pendant for Estelle. So she asks Estelle, it has to be one memory that ties to each of the five senses. So the opening of the game is you as Estelle moving through the house, interacting with different objects from Estelle's room, from the home. It's kind of, a, you know, it's a relatively small home, just kind of the main living room area and the bed, your bedroom that you're kind of given to roam through. But you can pick up probably, I don't know, 10 to 15 different object, uh, objects and decide which ones you want your mother to give up. And essentially, when you hand her the object and tell her what sense you want it to tie to, she will recall a memory. And in the process of recalling it, she will lose the memory. The way they describe that was really powerful, too. Her mom mm -hmm. talks about what it feels like to lose the memory, which is like there's suddenly a void. And then it like, like she feels the absence, but then feels it quickly fill in mm. and doesn't even realize what she's lost mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that was really powerful. Um, but yeah, just this, just this idea that memories are a thing that can harm us and the way that like perpetuates as you move through the world is Estelle leaves her home and she goes out, you know, you get to Tiang Valley and a huge 
thing with the valley. So the valley is the area that's, this is where and why the season is changing mm-hmm. is because uh, um, these people have lived in this valley. The valley was created by the placement of a dam many seasons ago. People don't even really remember who built the dam and they don't have the knowledge to fix the dam. The mm-hmm. dam is starting to come apart. And so they've decided that rather than wait for the dam to eventually break down and flood the valley, they're going to move the people out and flood the valley intentionally. Um, just to speed, speed up what was going to happen naturally, have some control over it, and be able to evacuate people in a timely manner. Um, that's kind of what's on its face is presented as the reason for their actions. And, and you start to kind of learn there's a bit more behind this desire to to flood the valley. Mm-hmm. Um, that has more has also has a lot to do with memory this valley was a key site during the war it was the place where the war ended and the entire valley is kind of haunted by these memories of the war that had occurred and so part of the impetus for drowning the valley is to actually drown out the memories to divorce people from the memory of this and like help them move on from the trauma there's also like a key figure from estelle's town who uh who was a doctor and his entire work was helping Mm -hmm. cure diseases of memory. Um, And a lot of that was related to helping people actually get rid of memories that were problematic for them Mm -hmm. and how that was like a lightning of a load. Anyway, this, so the theme continues throughout the game and I just, I don't know. What did you kind of think about how the game was interacting with this idea of memories being, I don't know, potentially harmful or, uh, really impacting us in in a real way. How history is kind of like right there under yeah. the surface of things. Yeah, like I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, like something I that just occurred to me is like the presence of there are these like the weight of memory is so heavy in this world that if you have too much of it, it literally sinks into the ground and becomes this crystalline mm. uh, mineral. Yep. that overtakes uh, an area of the land and begins emitting this aura and this sound um, that you can't get away from. Like it, it literally s- starts like <laughs> distorting uh, the sound and space around itself. Mm-hmm. And so all of these layers of past seasons, the past war, the past trauma felt by the older generations, um, yeah, there's this desire to to like cleanse it of with the hope that maybe being free of that trauma could change what humans in the future do. Like I, I thought it was mm-hmm. an interesting premise because I feel like um you know, like here in the US, it's our eagerness to forget the past that I think keeps us in a cycle of violence. We don't want children to learn about quote unquote critical race theory mm. because it's, you know, what I don't know what, too hard for them to grasp or to like there are people mm-hmm. who don't don't want children to know the truth of the, you know, black civil rights movement. There are people who don't want gay, the word gay to be spoken in schools because le- teaching children about um, you know, the LGBTQ civil rights movement and the presence of LGBTQ people in their life is like not appropriate, whatever. And it's like, you know, I think the more there are pe- more and more people don't think the Holocaust happened. They think it was a hoax. And so mm-hmm. I do think in some regards, the further we get from uh, the realities of history, the more want, the more likely it is that we are going to repeat it. That being said, um, this game seems to take 
attack of like, well, the more that we're mired in the past, um, the less space we have to create something new in the future. Um, and I guess there's this choice that you as the main character have of like, you know, most of the game is spent hearing others' memories and collecting them. And mm-hmm. so it's like, who is, it's like, who is anyone to decide like what should make it in and, and what doesn't. But it, I guess, I don't know if it comes to any definitive conclusions because it seems to be saying a little bit of both. Like, yes, we should hold on to things that matter and we should be ready to let go of um, things that aren't serving us anymore. But when mm-hmm. it comes to things like, let's wash away the memories of the war, which was a previous season. Um, I don't know if, if I can say, you know, if that is a good or bad thing. And, and maybe the game isn't asking me to make that choice. Yeah, I think, I don't think the game is, I don't think the game is weighing in on mm. that specifically. And I think they give you as the player a lot of opportunity, like, we're really diving in thematically. We haven't really <laughs> broken down like how you actually play or interact so with, with this game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we're going to circle back to that at this point because I don't want to derail this conversation. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 really useful. You know, something I, I want to talk about this in more detail. But yes, one of the key aspects of the way you interact with the game is that you are taking pictures, you are recording audio, and you are filling in a journal. Uh, of each place that you go to capture that place. And Estelle's role, like Estelle is sent from her village, um, her, because what, basically what happens, uh, you learn what happens is that Estelle's friend has a vision or has a dream, a prophetic dream. And the village elder interprets that dream to mean that the season is ending. And so Estelle decides in that moment when she learns that the season is ending and that it's going to precipitate from Tang Valley she decides that she wants to become an archivist. This is why she's going out into this world. And she comes from like a really isolated community where people don't leave very often. So it's like a very big deal that she's leaving. She's going to go be an archivist. She's going to go to Tiang Valley and she's going to archive what's happening there. And that's part of why she gets the memory pen too. The idea is that it is her role to be someone that mem- remembers, mm. right? So the game is both giving us, you know, this lens as a main character whose job it is to be a person that remembers and that archives and that is recording this so that the people of the future will know what happened while at the same time engaging with, um, you know, these this these people in this place who are actively going to try to wipe the slate clean. Who who? So you actually have like conflicting, I think, viewpoints that the game is trying to present mm-hmm. both options at the same time. Like, so the there's like a, I don't know if you would call them a political entity, but the folks in Tang Valley who are responsible for, uh, who are moving people out and who are going to act the enact the flooding, or they call themselves the Gray Hands, mm-hmm. and they're like a, I, I don't know, they're a body, they're a group of people, they're kind of like civil servants, I guess maybe you could put yeah, it, yeah, I guess, yeah, that have come together to try to be responsible for and take care of the community, um, and they're the ones who've made this decision to do this, and they're the ones that are responsible for moving people out, um. But it's it's them that are really like adamant that we need to do this to wash away the memories, like that we need to hit this reset button. And as you're moving through the valley, you're there on the last day that the valley exists. A lot of people have already moved out, but there's like a handful of folks that you can still find and meet and talk to. And they're some of the ones who I think potentially have some of like the closest ties to the valley. Like mm-hmm. you meet a, a woman who's who's trying to pack up her house, like trying to decide what items from her house to actually bring. And she can really only bring a suitcase. So she's got her entire house laid out on the lawn and she's like walking through it and her 
her husband, she, it's her and her, her kid, who's like, I don't know, maybe 10. Mm-hmm. I'm not good with children's ages. He might be a bit <laughs> younger than that. Um, her husband, the child's father, had passed not too long ago. And so a lot of the memories in the home are kind of tied up in him, too, and trying to decide how to hold on to him, how to hold on to their life here while understanding that it's all going to get flooded and washed away. So I, I definitely, I don't, I didn't take it as the game was making a clear statement on one of these is better than the other, but that it is something that's in conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. And I think if anything, the game may be leaning towards the idea that we can't fully remove it. It's like we could wash away mm. our memory as humans, but literally the memories sink into the land. Like mm. they are part of spaces and plants. I mean, you you know, the, and there's places in our real world too that are haunted with memory, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's certain places you can go in this world where traumatic events happened and you can feel the weight of that history. Totally. And what would that feel like if we didn't actually remember the thing that had happened, if history didn't record it? Like, Mm. It, within the world of the game, I think those places would still have these memories tied to them. Yeah, absolutely. So, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if the game is saying one versus the other, but it, it's definitely presenting these kind of conflicting ideas of should we be remembering and holding on to these things? Or is could we really make a lot of progress if we wipe the slate clean? Totally. There's a, a moment uh, early in the exploration of the valley where um, Estelle has finished a section of her journal and she says aloud, what if on the other side of all of our fears is a better world or a worse one? What if it depends on what we do right now? Um, and it made me think of a quote that I had read um, from Grace Lee Boggs. Um, who was a Chinese-American social justice and labor activist. Um, And she was really active in Detroit's Black Power movement in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, She lived a very full life, prolific writer. I definitely recommend folks read her books. Um, She lived to be 100 years old, and she just passed away in 2015. So again, this is like history that feels very distant, but also Mm -hmm. is still right here. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And she's written... And again, this is like from, uh, you know, decades ago at this point, mm-hmm. she's written, we are beginning to understand that the world is always being made fresh and never finished. History is not the past. It is the stories we tell about the past, how we tell these stories triumphantly or self-critically, metaphysically or dialectically has a lot to do with whether we cut short or advance our evolution as human beings. And I just feel like... <laughs> Like these writings from these from these writers and thinkers um, who were most active like decades ago, but whose words still ring so true and so applicable to today. Um, I feel like the game. I don't know. It's it's really it really feels like it's it's speaking from that legacy of of um, you know like <sighs> intersectional and Afrofuturist dreamers and writers and activists who have been, who have known for a long time um, that the apocalypse is always happening and that we are in a constant state of change and that, yes, these stories, uh, what we choose to take with us um, and what we choose to learn from them are going to influence um, our evolution as humans. And and I feel like um, the game, if I were to think of like a potential thesis for the game, maybe it's along those lines. Um, Mm. So yes, as you're saying, I don't know that the game is saying whether or not definitively um, I agree that it's, that it's not making a judgment in that way. Um, But it's just 
really cool to think about the the cyclical nature of all things, which is what this game feels like it's reminding me of. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. But um, yeah, let's let's mechanics, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah, let's let's rewind a bit then and and talk about about how you're actually engaging with the game. Um, so. I've already referenced that you have your main character has a camera and you have an audio recorder and that you're moving through the world capturing spaces. As you take pictures, as you create audio recordings, um, you can then place them inside of a sketchbook that is inside of the menu. You open up the sketchbook and you're usually for for any kind of like named general area, you'll have two pages of open sketchbook to fill in with pictures and um, other things will generate like when you take a picture, Estelle might have a thought about that picture, about the item that you're taking a picture of. And so those thoughts will show up as like kind of handwritten lines that you can add to the journal. Um, you'll also unlock like stickers and sketches that Estelle is doing. Certain sounds that you record might unlock a detailed sketch that Estelle has done. Um, it all It feels very... Um, authentic to like the process of creating a memory book. And it feels very tactile. Like mm-hmm. uh, it, as you piece the sketchbook together, it does really feel like something that Estelle is making mm-hmm. on her journeys. Like it does, it doesn't feel like this sort of pristine separate thing. Um, and you can place the items kind of anywhere on the pages. You can put as much or as little, well, not as little as you want. The game does have, um, what I think is probably one of the more, it's one of the mechanics that I have a lot of feelings about, which mm-hmm. is that there's a little bar that fills up as you place items in the book. And usually for each location, um, you will place anywhere from like two to five items in the sketchbook and the bar will fully fill. So the idea is that you can't just go to an area, take one picture and like (laughs) consider the sketchbook done. Like Mm -hmm. the game. And I understand they want you to be kind of forced to experience a space and to capture it and try to put that in your sketchbook before you move on to the next space. The game has no judgments about what, items you're putting in the sketchbook, just that you are putting items in. And then once you hit that quota of however many items they deem is appropriate for that area, uh, the little bar fills up and you get a very brief little cutscene of Estelle kind of giving a final reflection on the place that she was just in. And then that sketchbook page is considered done as far as the game's concerned. The game's Mm -hmm. not going to force you to make any more edits to that page. It's not going to require you to fill that page in anymore to continue. But if you want, you can continue to move things around. You can continue to add to it. I'm curious what how you felt about that particular bar mm-hmm. because it was a pain point for me personally. Yeah. Not, a, not a pain point in the sense that like didn't ruin the experience. But what I hated about the bar is that it would inevitably set off Estelle's final reflection when I had barely put anything. It felt like to me that I had barely put anything into the sketchbook. Mm. And so when when you get that little animation and Estelle gives her final thoughts, it does this sweeping camera view of the pages that you put together. And for me, it was always like mostly bare pages yeah, yeah, yeah. that had like three items on them. And and after that moment happened, I would spend another hour filling yeah. in those pages and cramming is like I personally found with the sketchbook, I was cramming as much in as I possibly could. Mm-hmm. Multiple pictures. I was moving things around to make them fit. I would... Uh, think I was done with an area and then I would catch another sound or get something, yeah. another picture. And then I'd be taking things out, moving things around. So I was constantly like editing those pages and, and trying to get them to perfectly capture that space. Yeah. And so I found myself really frustrated with the, the way the game would be like, okay, you're done. Here's the conclusion. Yeah. And I really feel like I understand why they needed a meter 
Because some folks would go and take one picture and then be like, great, I'm done. Mm -hmm. Of course, if you are that person, why are you playing this game? Mm -hmm. But I digress. I understand the need for some sort of a metric to say, like, you have captured the place. And I understand the desire for that barrier to be relatively low because they want people to play the game. They want to play the game. But why not just let me, like, once I filled the bar, why not let me decide when I want to prompt Estelle's final thoughts on the place? Like, I feel like that would have fixed the whole issue for me. I could just, if it was like the bar fills and then it's just like, press this button when you're ready. Yeah. To do the thing, it would have solved the whole thing for me. But I totally. just, it, it sucked so bad every time it went off. And it's just like a blank page. Yeah, pans and like across one a little blank sketch. page. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You're nodding a lot. So I take it you had a similar experience. Yeah. Jamie was taking her role as archivist very seriously. I was. Which is true. I was. It's like, you're telling me I need to document the end, the, the way everything was for the end of the world. Like, I'm not just going to put one picture on this page. Yeah. Um, yeah. I felt very similarly like I was kind of like it would be nice if it would just say like okay the bar is full like press whatever when you're ready to close the chapter on this on this section um so that I yes I share everything that you just said I also feel like I had a slightly opposite issue where Mm. for some of the sections um the pages were blank and for some of the sections they would have like an outline of a specific Mm. Mm -hmm. item that or a specific uh, insight that they wanted you to include. In yeah, the there's sca- like in the investigation scrapbook. pages where it's yeah. like, what's going on with this thing? And then it's kind of prompting you to take specific recordings or pictures. Yeah. yeah. And with that, um, that kind of frustrated me in a different way where I felt mm. like instead of just being drawn to what I found interesting or taking pictures of the story that I wanted to tell, I felt like I needed to hunt for mm. very specific objects and items. And it kind of took me out of of the journey a bit because I felt like I needed to check off this to-do list. I understand that like in the investigative sections, it was it was very much like, what what is the significance of this specific um shrine? And so mm-hmm. I would need to like fill in find certain items that would help me understand where the context of where I was. Um, But something about that just kind of took the fun out of it a bit for me when it was like, it was enforcing what specific items I needed to look for. And it kind of got like, because the map um, is like, I mean, it's a short game, but the map is, is big um and dense and dense and so i I got kind of anxious like oh no, am I going to have to ride around for 20 minutes to like find (laughs) this thing? So yeah yeah i feel that i wonder i didn't actually try to do this um but i can you finish the game without filling in all the pages yeah i think yeah i think you can just leave i think as long i've noticed that like it's uh, it seems like certain interactions with with certain characters would advance the time of day and i know that to get to the ending of the game you have to walk through this gate that only opens at sunset so there are main story beats that you have to get through to progress the traversal of the sun. But mm-hmm. like the investigative stuff, I think, is extra, extra yeah. content that you don't have to finish. Yeah, because the I wasn't as bothered by those investigative pages simply mm. because I felt like they were it was very obvious what they were set up for, which was that if you want to understand the like narrative going on, because the, the game is, you know, on its surface, like pretty narrative light. It's very exploration based there's not a ton of dialogue in it there's not a ton of um 
like the main way that you're interacting is through the, is through capturing the world and putting it in your sketchbook. And there's not a lot of like, you're not doing side quests or Mm -hmm. anything like that. Um, there's no mission structure. There's Mm -hmm. no skill points, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, there's nothing like that. So I appreciated the investigation pages because they were like, Hey, if, if you are interested in trying to discover the underlying narrative to this world, if you fill in these pages, you're going to have a pretty good sense of what that is. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, then you just won't know. Like, you don't have to. But I wanted to know that stuff. And I was glad to have the prompts because that is mm. something I we've talked about this before. But with exploration-based games, it is a really fine line for where it becomes overwhelming or feeling mm. like it's too much of a time sink. And I don't feel like mm. I have a focused enough direction to move in. And those kind of pages helped focus where I was going to piece together the story. And I, I was able to finish the game without feeling like I had missed Mm. a bunch of things or worrying that I had missed a bunch of things, which is a common, that was a fear that I encountered with Sable is like a lot of the times I was like, God, I think I've gone through this whole area, but who knows? Um, And and some of it is like, I need to be like, be better about like letting some of that go. Like, Mm. but I want to feel like I've, I've gotten everything there is to get out of a game. Um, uh, but but I think that density that you refer to is is super intentional, and we haven't talked yet about how you move through the world, uh, which I also think was a really interesting mechanical choice. Estelle doesn't have a car. You see cars, uh, a few cars throughout the game, through a few motor vehicles. Um, but what Estelle uses to get around is her bicycle, um, which is a really interesting choice. The movement of the bicycle is controlled by actually pedaling with the, well, I don't, I guess I don't know how you do it on a PC, but I played this on my PS5 and you actually control the pedaling with the, uh, the R2 and L2 buttons, yeah. the triggers, <laughs> which was an, it like moving those like you would pedals, like pressing R2 first, then L2, R2, L2, R2, L2. And if you do that quicker or like harder, she'll pedal harder or like more mm-hmm. jerkier and actually pedal the bike to get it moving. Um, then once you're moving, you can kind of coast. Um, but I thought using a bicycle and like making it really mechanical like that, really tactical, was was an interesting choice. Yeah. And I personally liked it, but there's been a lot of divisiveness uh, mm. among reviewers around the bicycle. What? How did you feel about the bike and moving through the world? For the most part, I really enjoyed it. Like I Like the... It, I liked that feeling of like going from inertia to gliding on the bike and going down a hill and feeling your speed build. Like I, I kind of felt that childlike freedom and joy of just like being on an open bike path. Like that was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely had moments where I felt like for me, my challenges were coming up in like steering and reversing. Like I did crash into things a lot of the time <laughs> or um, like you can't, there's no real control like you're either like not moving or you're at top speed there's not much ability to slow down and speed up as needed so Mm. taking sharp turns (laughs) would go badly for me sometimes um there wasn't any like you don't crash or anything. Yeah, it's not like it's um, flying over the handlebars, yeah. ragdoll physics. <laughs> She's not wearing a helmet. That's true. But um, <laughs> I, I liked the 
kind of analog nature of like, I don't need machinery. I don't need, um, like, like it was interesting, like the presence and lack of technology, like I think mm. it kind of feeds into the world building where like Estelle has grown up in a world where like you find old broken down radios and record players and cars, but she's never seen these things before. She's never had a pet, like you mm. encounter cows and she's like, oh, this is the first animal that I've touched and seen. Like, mm. um, there's just a lot of things that have been lost. And so you feel like you're in this place kind of taken out of time. This world that she lives in is, um, is very different from ours, even though some objects in it do resonate. So yeah, um, I thought the bike was a really cool touch and, and I, I enjoyed it for the most part. Yeah. Um, Renata Price had an interesting quote in her, uh, her piece that she wrote for waypoint, um, which is on vice.com or Waypoint Games is part of vice.com. Um, but the piece is called Scrapbooking at the End of the World in Season. And uh, she was kind of talking about the this density of the spaces and the way the world asks you to move through it. And she <laughs> had this quote where she, like, I couldn't have cataloged these numbers, so I thought, I thought it was interesting. Mm. She's like, to ride your bike to each of the major landmarks in the Tang Valley takes 13 minutes and 29 seconds. To walk from the entrance of the valley to Assembly Point, where the valley really begins, takes 15 minutes and 47 seconds, during which you will take around 1,944 steps over 4,483 feet. The particular texture of light in the Tang Valley changes seven times. Mm. I just thought that was interesting that, first, that that's like an observation that she included her piece. Yeah. <laughs> but as I was reading that, I was like, yeah, it's the world requires you to move through it. Mm -hmm. Like, and it's, and it's very intentional And she's kind of using this to talk about how it's, you know, Tang Valley, the world that's presented in the game is not an abstract space. In fact, it's like very specific and detailed and meticulously built because it wants you to be capturing it and then making those decisions of what, what history holds. And this is something I meant to mention while we were talking about the scrapbook, but like, one of the things that was most powerful for me in this game and through the creation of the scrapbook was the way I was constantly having to decide what to prioritize. Mm -hmm. Because as, you, as I said, as we were saying, you can't fit everything about a space into two pages of a scrapbook. It's impossible. It's literally impossible. So you are constantly deciding what is important to hold on to. And I think through those decisions, like I just found myself thinking a lot about like what was important to me in terms of how I think about my past or what the future should carry forward. Um, Estelle will have thoughts that are very personal to her, like things about her personal story in life. Uh, should that stuff go in yeah. an archive? That's be like, how important is the perspective of the archivist in the work that yeah. you're creating? That's going to live in the annals of history. Like how much should I be focusing on the people of the Valley versus the animals versus the structures mm. versus the culture, cult, you know, the cultural artifacts versus what's actually going on with the gray hands and, and all of that. I mean, you could, and to try to capture all of it then feels like really incomplete because it or fragmented, right? If it, you know, I've got a picture of a goat and I've got a picture of a windmill <laughs> and I've got the audio of the wind blowing and I've got a picture of the woman whose house is on the lawn but did that really capture what that space was or what that meant mm. to me? And how do we, how do we hold on to these things? How do we uh. craft memory? <laughs> What's important to hold on to and who gets to decide? I mean, even I think I was kind of thinking about like the way, you know, what we put in the history books, what we hold on to historically, like there's still someone who's cultivating that. 
Mm-hmm. Like we don't capture these things in whole. Mm-hmm. It's always through a lens. Mm. That was something I always found really interesting in film school, thinking about with like documentary filmmaking. There's constantly this question of, you know, is it cinema verite? Are we like actually capturing truth Mm. or is it always through a lens? And it's like, well, it's always through a lens. Even, even the most, uh, you know, unless you're literally just setting up a camera and not editing and not doing like, you know, there's always a lens. And I think we record history that way too, but we don't think about that. And even that camera, that even that camera not being yeah. touched still has a specific perspective that it's looking and at the it, scene And what from. impact does that have on the people who are existing in front yeah. of the camera? What oh. is the, even the act of being recorded, how does that change the way people are behaving? Totally. Um, one of my favorite interactions in the game uh, that I, I see in, in our, in our Google doc that we used to put the episode together, we'd like <laughs> drop quotes and important things we want to touch on. And I see Spencer's got some stuff in here from her as well, but there is an, an interaction that you have with an artist in uh, the game. Yeah. That was one of my favorite sections Same. of the game. She's a very elderly woman named Matiora who lives alone in the forest. Um, and she's decorated the forest with pieces of her art. She makes a lot of her art out of found objects um, and junk, basically. Like her, she's got like basically a junkyard in her yeah. yard, and she uses scrap metal and things like that to make these these big pieces. And the forest that she lives in is absolutely beautiful. I spent so much time wandering through that east forest path. Mm-hmm. The way the uh, there's all of these you know kind of lights strung up through the forest surrounding her artwork, and the light is kind of coming through the trees. And there's a river running nearby, and all these waterfalls. And it's an absolutely beautiful section of the game that you move through. Um, and then you find her little hut and go visit her, and. She was a really interesting character to me. Yeah. Because first of all, you start taking pictures of her art and she's like, oh, who are you? Like, <laughs> what the heck are you doing here? And she kind of seems torn between this idea of like, she she immediately starts criticizing her own art and mm-hmm. like claiming that like nobody needs to remember it and needs to hold on to it. But the more you talk to her, the more she like starts to be like, well, okay, like, here, I'll sign this thing for you so mm-hmm. you can put this in your book. And <laughs> I don't think any of my art pieces are worthy to put in your book, but you can put them in there. Um, <laughs> and you kind of build up to this this beautiful moment with her where she she sings you a song. And I don't know, you kind of become friends with her. She also, like, after you have, like, the main interaction with her, it opens up a dialogue branch where you can continue to explore the world and then come back to her and show her pictures that you've taken because she's like, yeah, I'm too old to kind of travel around the valley anymore, but if you want to bring me things that you've collected from other areas, I'd love to see them. And so you can go out and take pictures of other things and bring them back and she'll kind of comment on them. And so she kind of becomes this, um, I don't know, like a friend or a confidant yeah. as you're building your your archive. And also as being like another creative person, she's one of the handful of people in the game who takes your your book, your scrapbook and like actually looks through it mm-hmm. and gives you like some feedback on it and like has things to say. It's just a really interesting experience. But as the kind of main moment with her concludes it's a really i don't know it's really evocative scene very beautifully animated like the whole moment is really beautiful she sings this beautiful song and she kind of concludes it all um by saying a moment can never hang on the wall of a museum but you can still carry it with you and that i i love that line of dialogue so much and i feel like for me I, I think there's a lot of things you can walk away from this game with but for me that was like one of the I don't know, it's kind of like the start of a thesis statement for the game for me of like this idea that like as Estelle, I'm moving through these spaces and I'm having these interactions with these people 
I'm recording these memories from the memory crystals that are coming up. I'm having all this and I can try to capture this in this journal. But ultimately, like what's going to live on is my memory of this place, which is rooted in these memories, the things that I can't tangibly capture in this journal and pass to another person are the things that are really going to stick with me. Mm. And that's the experience of the game is kind of like that for me too, right? Like as the player externally, it's like, I can take the screenshots. We can have this conversation, this recording, like (laughs) I can have moments of the game that I've jotted down the quotes, but none of that really captures the full experience of playing the game, which is what I'm going to carry with me beyond today. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you you loved meeting Nadira too. Did you have anything you wanted to talk about there? No, just I am so like chuffed that that moment stood out to you too. Because for me, I think stand uh, like the two of you create a new piece of art in mm. the forest, um, and you share tea together. Um, and she says like she feels like she wants to sing, and so she begins to sing a song. Um, and this moment for me, kind of unexpectedly, felt like the climax of the game. Like I think mm. it was the moment that sticks with me the most, and where I mm. sort of felt like I came across the most profound realizations. Um, mm. I noticed that, um, so she sings her song and, uh, at the end you're sort of interrupted by the blaring of an alarm because as we mentioned, the end of the world is approaching, the, the valley is meant to be evacuated and the last folks are kind of getting their stuff together and, and getting out. And, um, you have a choice when she begins to sing, the screen prompts you do you want to continue observing your surroundings as she sings or do you want to close your eyes? Yeah. Um, I had, I watched some other playthroughs of the same scene. Um, and when you choose to keep your eyes open and continue taking in your surroundings, she only is able to sing a couple words before that alarm interrupts you. And the whole rest of the song, you never hear it. If you choose to close your eyes, it's crazy because you're looking at a completely black screen. Mm-hmm. You're hearing someone sing in a fictional language and you're just seeing the English subtitles on the screen of of translating the words of her song. But in that pitch black screen, they do something with the swelling of music and and sound that make I was crying by the end of the song. Yeah. Um I'm starting to get misty now just recalling it because I played it like two hours ago this morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it just really struck me that in this very lush, beautiful game, the moment that's sticking with me the most is one where I could see nothing, hear mm. a song I could not understand, and was just reading the words that were written. Mm. Um, and there was something too about the fact where if you if you keep your eyes open, you you miss that moment, which was so powerful to me. Yeah, I mean, I kept I kept my eyes open. Oh, you did? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Something else I... Okay, one more thing I noticed about this scene is okay. um, it seems like depending on... Because you have the option to construct uh, this piece of art and you you pick from her like junkyard, like what you want to include in this collaborative sculpture that the two of you are making together. And I, I guess maybe um, it depends on what objects you pick, because I noticed that in some other people's playthroughs, the lyrics of the song were different. Um, mm. And so that was interesting to me, too. But in my are version, you able to? Oh, I'm no, sorry. Go ahead, go I want you to share what your version was. But I was curious if you're able to record that. In yes. The, I, in the, OK, I think so. In the sketchbook. 
Yeah, I think so. I think you have the option. Yeah, I think I'm pretty sure you have the option to record it or just listen. That's right. And I did record, even though I had my eyes open, I did record it and put it in the sketchbook. But okay. Yeah. So tell us about. Yeah. So what she, she starts to sing this song. And, and, we're, and we're talking about um, sort of coming back to themes. I felt like this moment, this song was for me to getting at sort of the thesis of this game. Um, and so the translation of the lyrics she sings are, and this is, this is, not the whole song. This is just the piece that was really resonating with me the most. Um, she sings, the band is playing in the backyard. I'm the gravity in your heart. The weight of life makes us dance until we get so high. You ask me where my mind is. It's still in the morning sun. Sometimes I'm the light on my grandma's face. She lived so hard. Whoa. And so <laughs> just this come juxtaposition of the the joy of life of being with the land with nature of feeling light and and dancing like like things that are so integral to being human but also shadowed in the fact that uh lines like i'm the gravity in your heart um my grandmother's her life was so hard like like we as humans are are dancing <laughs> on our own graves like we it just reminds us of how life is everything both happy and sad and we carry all of that mm. with us in our experience um and again it made coming back to um our earlier conversation around parable of the sower it reminded me of a quote um that lauren says in that book um where or she says, the uh, Butler writes, Lauren says, the world is full of painful stories. Sometimes it seems as though there aren't any other kind. And yet I found myself thinking how beautiful that glint of water was through the trees. <laughs> and for me, I just, that, it feels like that song and that quote are both speaking about the same thing, about how... Mm. Uh, this game, I mean, you you do collect many people's painful stories, stories of loss, um, stories of grief. Um, you leave behind people who are incredibly important to you. Um, you learn about wars, about pain, about um, sickness and death. Um, and yet you're also capturing the beauty, you're capturing art, you're capturing those song snippets and, and memories of, of these cultures that are all piled on top of one another. Um, and yes, like, like you were saying, um, it speaks to how um, these moments, they, the way that they're felt and experienced, they're never going to be able to exist on the wall of a museum, but, but you're going to be carrying them with you. Like, I don't know. It just felt like the convergence of all of these things. And it just really hit me. <laughs> yeah. And I think this, I don't know, for me, all of that, that reading of it and the importance of these moments, it does make the, uh, the, the ending and the wiping out of these, of the, of the memories in the place, I think more, more tragic and less, um, less of like this fresh new beginning that like there is some hope in what the gray hands are doing for this space. But I think there's also a lot of sadness in the law lo- and what's being lost mm-hmm. to, to try to do that. Yeah. It reminds me too of um, just how many you have these options throughout the game to, you'll come across like a bench or a place to sit mm-hmm. and all you do is sit there and have the option to sketch or record or just observe 
um, and just take in the nature around you. Um, I think, you know, nature is very healing and, and the, and the game too talks about how, um, like there's a quote around, um, what we do to the land eventually makes it into our blood and our brains. This can define a season is a, is a something that Estelle says. And, you know, mm. we talked about the way the memories sink into the ground and the way the land holds is haunted by what has happened before. Um, just, just that reminder that, um, um, you know, like Lauren observing that that beautiful glint of water through the trees, even while holding the pain of all these memories, like it's all connected. Um, and, and I just appreciated the way the game, too, was keeping you anchored to the land and, and observing the beauty there and, and taking that with you, too. Yeah, there was um, another key moment in the game uh, for me that it was a, less of a thesis statement, like the the moment with Matiora, but I wanted to just ask you about it. Cause I'm curious mm-hmm. which direction you went with this. So I'm assuming you did the, um, I, I can't recall the name of the woman whose house is on the lawn, but her son, Kochi, mm-hmm. uh, you can go on like a bike tour of the Valley with him. Did you do, you did the tour? Yes. I feel like you kind of can't miss it, but yeah. I don't. So fun. And her so son, fun. Kochi. Yep. Yeah. So you go on the bike tour with Kochi and the tour concludes at the, lo- at the cemetery there in Tiang Valley. Um, and Kochi visits his father's grave. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have a moment with him. You've kind of gone all around. He's been sharing these little memories of his father and, and the valley and his time there. And uh, you get to the cemetery and you can sit down with him for a little bit in front of his father's grave. And Estelle, like, it, Kochi, like, lays down and kind of puts his head in your lap. And Estelle is sitting there cross-legged. And she has the thought that her and Kochi have this thing in common, which is that they both lost their father. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's something that they could potentially bond about. And she decides she wants to share this with Kochi, um, and share like, you know, just, I actually don't know what she shared because the game gives you this option to either record what you're about to share with Kochi. She makes a point of saying like, what I'm about to tell him, I've never told anyone else. Um, and then the game is like, do you want to record what Estelle says or not? Mm. And I felt like. You never told this to anyone else. This is incredibly personal. It's a special moment between you and Kochi. And at this point, I'd already had the conversation with Matiora and this idea that like you can't fully capture these moments, mm. that there's like a power to being in the moment. And so I was like, no, I'm, I'm not going to record this in the sketchbook because I feel like this is something that's really about Estelle and Kochi. And it's kind of like not the business of, of the people who are reading this book. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so I didn't record it. But when you choose to not record it, it doesn't even show you. Mm. which like very much I think like the perspective that the game is giving you the player is I think meant to be like the art like the person who's reading Mm -hmm. Estelle's journal I was just curious what decision you made in that moment or like I don't know how you felt about that moment because it really hit for me yeah that really hit and I was a bad boy and I recorded it because <laughs> I wanted to share in the moment and I was scared that, yeah. which is what happened. I was scared that um, if I didn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to observe it. And so yeah. I enacted my, my, um, my player privilege <laughs> and I recorded it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. So what happens then um, if you record yeah, it? Yeah, so in that moment is... Uh, where, which is what strengthened my sort of parallels to parallel parable of the sower was that she talks about how she was uh, around Kochi's age when her father passed. Mm. Um, he was climbing a mountain and he okay. fell 
um, and they they could not find his body, um, which is actually mm-hmm. what happens uh, in in Parable of the Sower as well. They they never find uh, Lauren's father's body, and she's haunted by wondering like if he might still be out there. And so mm-hmm. Estelle talks about the same thing. She says like she felt like she spent years like just looking for him everywhere, and she says she even began to become obsessed with the idea of spaces, like looking for him in the space between breaths or in uh, the space where her eyes are closed as she's blinking. Like she talks about just yearning for him in, in so many uh, areas of her life um, and how silly she felt in sort of um, this magical thinking she was taking on in, in continuing to search for him, um, but having to grow up um, without him and only having um, that loss, that memory to carry with her. Um, and she she shares that with him and the camera pans down as she concludes and you see that he has fallen asleep uh, in her arms um, listening to her story. Wow. Oh, what I know. a game. I know, it's like the writing is incredible. Yeah, I I completely agree. I there's something about the writing where it just strikes this great balance of feeling it feels very uh like unrealistically intimate to yeah. some degree but like still feeling very grounded in in humanity. Mm-hmm. Um Renata Price again her her piece for for Vice. Um she has a a great quote that I'll share here quickly because I think it it kind of speaks to this. But she wrote that in addition to the photos she takes and the sounds she records, Estelle has a handful of opportunities to talk to the other inhabitants of her dying world. These conversations are as brief and as naturalistic as they are literary. Mm. So, yeah, like they feel very literary. Um, characters speak in memories and aphorisms. They tell Estelle so much despite having just met her. However, unlike many games where this immediate intimacy feels unnatural, if expected, the presence of Estelle's tape recorder reframes these short dialogues. These are not just conversations between strangers. Instead, they are people's last chance to give testament to the lives they lived. Of course, they'd be a little grandiose. Mm. And so I think the the framing that they set the conversations up within helps make it feel more... Uh, yeah, more grounded or more like these are interactions Estelle might actually be having. And the fact that it is the end of the world and Estelle is there to record these things uh, makes a little more sense why people kind of open up to her the way that they do. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I really love the, just the line by line writing and it, it just feels, everything feels very weighted and, and poignant and intentional. Yeah. Um, Like I felt like I had to hold myself back from just writing down quote, everything, single things (laughs) people were saying or taking screenshots of every single interaction. Like it's just so rich. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, like I was saying earlier about that scene where the screen is completely black and I'm so moved just by the words that are scrolling across the screen. Like I just feel like this game holds so many lessons about listening and just mm-hmm. just being open to um hearing other stories and and that adding richness to your own life like there's just a lot to take away from this game absolutely so uh closing thoughts should people play season a letter to the future i think so <laughs> i mean in 10 hours or less i think uh this game delivers a transformative experience which is which is always um uh, you know one of the things i love about gaming especially with um smaller games like this is that you don't need to spend 40 plus hours um to have a really 
cathartic, moving, challenging um, experience. Um, I think too, like when I think of all that the game is saying, like lessons about letting go, about impermanence, about the cyclical nature of things, about our responsibility to each other and to the land that we live on. Like you could read many books um, and you should, and people should read, I mean, <laughs> they shouldn't, uh, to kind of get at those same lessons, but there's something about moving through this 10 hour experience and, and sort of taking that away and internalizing that. Um, I just feel like it's valuable, like spiritually for anyone who, um, just wants to kind of have, get more in touch with a bit more of an existential side without mm. fully veering into like existential panic like I feel like I sometimes do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I found it to be a very meditative experience and like yeah. a very grounding and like or like centering experience too. Though the way the game um positions itself as as like this transitional point between two periods of time and and yeah, really focusing on like letting go of things moving into the next step but like carrying the past with you there's even moments where it kind of calls on this idea of like um you know what would you say to your ancestors both past and for and future and kind of evoking this idea of like where we're positioned in time and how we are everything that came before us and everything that will come after us that gives it this i don't know it's it's very calming in the way that it has this like kind of pulls out on the timeline mm. of life and the planet and the history of humans mm. and is like here we are and there's been so much before and so much that will come after mm-hmm. um that rather than being overwhelming uh was comforting for yeah. me yeah um cuz it, it's not presented as in like a you're meaningless or what impact could you have it's almost like you're being kind of held by the by those realities of like mm. every like supported by everything that's come before and uh putting your own like mark in the world for what will come after mm. Um, I wanted to share a final quote. One of the one of my favorite things that Estelle writes in her journal uh, near the end of the game is she's leaving the valley um, with the people that she met there. They're getting ready. They're going to flood the valley the next day, and she's she's getting in the van and leaving the valley. And uh, in her journal, she she writes, "The true end of Tang Valley was not the flood coming. It was when these people would go their separate ways." At the last moment, I saw them as a community. No matter what happens, I will carry the memory of these people into the next season. Um, Mm. That's kind of how I feel about the game, too. It was like the true end was not like the end of the game or that like what I'm taking with me from this game is the the interactions with the characters and the feelings that it evoked and how that will move forward. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I really, really appreciated the experience. Absolutely. Um, There's a there's a quote that came to my mind. Um, one of Octavia Butler's most famous quotes, um, which is there is nothing new under the sun, but there are new suns. Um, Mm. and it, and it, it came to me as I was finishing this game because, um, there is the literal, like in some ways you could imagine that the world of the next season, um, the one to come that they are all stepping into, is in a lot of ways a brand new world. It's going to be different. It's going to feel different. Um, but Estelle, like you were saying, is carrying with her um, the memories of those that came before. Um, and I think we talk about or, or, things I've seen around this game are that, like, you know, 
a, an apocalyptic story is not new. Um, mm-hmm. the, the stories, like it just across human experience, like many stories are not entirely new. Um, there, there are through lines throughout history that we can relate them back to and, and, and relate to each other over. Um, and so this idea that like, none of these stories are entirely new, but their influence on us and how we carry them with us um, and how we apply those lessons in an entirely new space, a new world, a new experience. Um, it's just a takeaway that I too felt like resonated with me in this game. And, and yeah, I, I don't think, I think this game unexpectedly, I almost feel like how I felt playing before your eyes at the beginning mm. of, uh, Oh my God, was that 2021? that we played yeah, that was, yeah. Early <laughs> January of last year. Just, uh, Sometimes a little game can be a gift and you don't even realize until you're in it uh, what is happening in your heart and mind. So, yeah, I I fucking love this game. It was great. (laughs) Yeah, really good stuff. All right. Time is up for today's session of Pixel Therapy. Thank you for tuning in. And we hope that listening to our thoughts and feelings gave you some thoughts and feelings of your own. If you want more Pixel Therapy, come check us out at patreon.com slash pixel therapy pod, where you can snag that monthly bonus episode for just $2 a month, plus get opportunities to get involved with the community and influence the show directly. If you're not up for contributing monetarily, but you enjoyed this episode, you can show your support for free by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts and following us on Twitter and Instagram at Pixel Therapy Pod. That stuff is just as important and we appreciate it just as much. And you can keep up with all this stuff and more by visiting our website at pixeltherapypod.com. Finally, since we like to put our money and our energy where our mouth is, we end every episode with a recommended side quest. Um, This week, I wanted to tell you guys about ESII.org, also known as the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute. So... The ESII was actually started by um, writer Adrian Marie Brown, um, who is someone who also loves the the work of writers, thinkers, and organizers Octavia Butler, Grace Lee Boggs, Charity Mahuna Hicks, and Margaret Wheatley. And so taking those writers' ideas and philosophies, um, Adrian Marie Brown started this um, institute uh, for activists as a way of um, helping provide frameworks and ways of thinking to help them um, work within these spaces and transform um, our current paradigm of racial, capitalist, patriarchal, scarce, and disconnected experiences into ones that are adaptive, relational, resilient, post-capitalist, feminist, and BIPOC-centered. So it's like, ideas, its trainings, its workshops, um, its resources. Um, and it's just a really cool um, organization. I definitely recommend folks check it out. You can also donate to support their work. Um, and, and if you are someone um, who is working in these spaces, um, I'd also encourage you to just check it out, check out the resources for yourself as well. Um, so to learn more about this awesome organization, to donate, to get involved, um, it's the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute, and you can visit it at ESII. Thank you for that side quest, Spencer. That is our show for today. So go forth, run a story mission, level up some stats, and don't forget to hug an NPC every now and then. We'll be back soon with some more Pixel Therapy. Therapy. <laughs> bye bye. I love how we're like never on the same like <laughs> note. Like it's not. We're not. <laughs>